Good morning. Everybody all right? Working on it? Yeah. Sometimes that's not an easy answer, is it? Glad you're here today. And uh, especially if you're visiting with us, especially glad to have you in our Bible class this morning. We are continuing our study today of the inspiration of the Bible, and um, that's under the broader heading or title of our uh, quarter-long study uh, called Why We Believe, and we're looking at uh, three major areas of uh, Christian doctrine, if you will, Christian evidences. We've already looked at uh, the evidence for the existence of God. Uh, now we're looking at the inspiration of the Bible, and in a couple of weeks we'll uh, begin to look at the evidence uh, for the deity of Christ, and um, then that will complete our quarter. And so, uh, inspiration of the Bible is our continuing study today. Let's begin with the prayer, and then we'll continue our study. Gracious Father, we thank you for the blessing of a night of rest, and thankful for this new day, thankful for the beauty of it, and thankful for the occasion that brings us here today. We're thankful for opportunities to study from your word. We're thankful for opportunities to assemble as your people and worship. We pray, Father, for your blessing to be with us in our class here. We ask for your blessings on the other classes that are also meeting at this time. Father, we pray that uh, we would be able to uh, take the things that we learned today and use them and share them with others and uh, help others to grow in their respect for your word. And we pray that in all things we would not just learn, but that we would also uh, practice and do the things that we learn. We thank you, Father, for loving us. We thank you for your grace and your mercy. And it's through Jesus that we pray. Amen. Today we are uh, specifically looking at uh, just a handful of uh, things that we might call amazing facts uh, that are found in the Scriptures, uh, especially things that... have been in the Bible all this time, of course, but as far as, um, you know, as far as modern uh, science and uh, archaeology and, and medicine, things like that, uh, we didn't, we as, as a, a people did not, uh, quote, unquote, discover these things until recently, but they've always been in the Scriptures, uh, which gives us... Uh, strong reason to believe that if these things have been in the Bible all this time for these thousands of years, but um, our technologies or whatever didn't discover these things until recently, and you're left with the question, well, how did these individuals who were the the writers of Scripture know these things? Uh, You have to take into account uh, the existence of, again, an overriding mind behind these things, uh, the mind of God, uh, an all-knowing 
mind. And so these are facts, <clears throat> excuse me, that we're going to look at that argue strongly for the inspiration of the Scriptures. <clears throat> and a lot of these things have to do with matters that pertain to the scientific uh, community or the scientific area. And <clears throat> some folks object to looking at this type of information uh, in the Scriptures by saying, well, you know, the Bible is not a scientific textbook. And, uh, and that's true. As a matter of fact, you know, I, I hear this objection or I've heard it a lot, and I don't know of anyone, uh, maybe you have, I don't know of anyone who has ever claimed that the Bible is a scientific textbook. You're not going to find a periodic table, uh, you know, wedged somewhere, you know, between, uh, you know, Ezekiel and Daniel, right? You're not going to find, you know, uh, the, the steps of the scientific method, or things like that in, in the Scriptures. The Bible is not a scientific textbook, and I don't know anybody that really claims that it is. But here's the, the issue with that statement. With that statement, there is hidden a very devious implication. That statement, uh, in the way that I've seen it used and applied, is designed really to say that the Bible is not accurate or reliable in the things that it addresses. People will say, well, you can't, you can't use the Bible that way because it's not a scientific textbook. Well, that may be true, but the implication is the Bible's not reliable. Uh, that I deny. And we'll see that that's the case uh, as we look at some of these things today. Here's a good, what I think is a good example of, of, or a good parallel to that line of argumentation. Somebody may, you say two guys are talking and one says to the other one, hey, have you seen Hank's wife? And the guy says, no, what does she look like? And he says, well, you know, she's not the most beautiful person in the world. Now, what is that statement designed to imply? That Hank's wife is ugly. Now, the fact of the matter is, or may well be, Hank's wife may not be the most beautiful person in the world. But she could still be extremely attractive. Maybe she's the second most beautiful person in the world, however you define that. But she could still be a very attractive woman and still not be the most beautiful person in the world. But implied in that statement, well, she's not the most beautiful person in the world. The, the, the statement is designed to make you think that she's ugly. I submit that that's the same intent behind that statement about the Bible. When somebody says, well, you know, the Bible is no scientific textbook, there's a backhanded insult embedded in that statement. And so I would caution you uh, when you hear someone make a statement like that, uh, that you watch for what their implication is. Um, but even though God did not design the Bible to be a textbook on science, since it is God's Word, we would expect it to be accurate, wouldn't we, whenever it addresses some matter that may be scientific in nature? Isn't that, isn't that a logical assumption to make? If the Bible is from God, then even though it's not designed to be a textbook on science, if it addresses a matter that is by nature scientific, you would expect it to be accurate, wouldn't you? All right? Well, that's, that's all we're saying. Think about this. Is the Bible a math textbook? No. I'm going to find algebraic equations and things like that in the Bible. It's not a math textbook. But... If the Scriptures are from God, would you not expect them to be accurate when they happen to deal with things that are mathematical in nature? I'll give an example. 
We looked at a prophecy last week in our class when we were looking at fulfilled prophecy as evidence of biblical inspiration. And it was the prophecy from Daniel chapter 9 of the 70 weeks, right? Well, that's not a mathematical equation or anything like that, but it's a mathemat- it, it's a it's a section of Scripture that deals with something that's mathematical in nature. And when Daniel divided up that 70 weeks into three sections, they were divided into a section of seven weeks, 62 weeks, and one week. Now, when you add all those together, what do they come up to? 70. All right, so the Bible's not a math textbook, but if it addresses something that's mathematical in nature, if the Bible's from God, you expect it to be accurate. So, 7 and 62 and 1 add up to 70, right? So you expect that if the Bible's from God. That's all we're saying when we say that the Bible does address some things that are scientific in nature. But that's not to say that the Bible is a scientific textbook, but it does mean that the Bible is accurate when it addresses whatever it addresses. Does that make sense? All right. So, what are we talking about when we talk about some of these uh, facts that are mentioned in Scripture. Some of them are just mentioned in passing. That doesn't mean they're any less true. Here are just a few. We won't look at all of these, but uh, we'll take some time to look at uh, probably most of them. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 22. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 22. Prophet is talking about God. And he says, concerning God, it is He, God, who sits above the circle of the earth. And its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a curtain, spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. I want you to focus on that first statement. It is He, it is God, who sits above the circle of the earth. Now that word in the Hebrew that's translated circle is translated well, it references something that is spherical or round in nature. Alright? So he's saying God sits above, God is above the round earth, the circle of the earth. Alright. 1492. What was Columbus trying to prove to people? That the earth was what? Round. Why? Why was he trying to prove that? <laughs> Look, you know, the, the common knowledge was, well, you know, they kept telling him, if, you know, if you go too far, you're going to fall off the earth because the earth is flat in nature. Yet Isaiah spoke of the spherical shape of the earth seven centuries before Christ. Well, how did he know that? He didn't have satellites. You know, he didn't have... He hadn't taken a trip to the moon where he could look back and see that the earth was round. He had to have some inside information, I'd say. How about Job 38, verse 16? Job 38, verse 16. This is in the section of Job where God is speaking. You have to be careful sometimes when you're using the book of Job. Um... Because there are a lot of things that are stated in the book of Job, especially in those earlier chapters, that are statements that are made by individuals who themselves are not inspired. Right? Now, let me explain that further so you don't misunderstand what I'm saying. 
the entire book of Job is an inspired book. Okay? But sometimes inspired literature contains the statements of uninspired people. Okay? So it's an inspired account of what an uninspired person said. Right? The, the Bible even contains the words of Satan, doesn't it? Right? Satan encountered Jesus, Matthew 4. The Bible records his words. Well, that doesn't mean his words are right, but it's an inspired and therefore completely accurate account of what he said. Right? The Bible contains the words of, sometimes, uninspired people. Well, Job's friends, and even Job in some cases, said some things that were not accurate. Right? Especially Job's friends. They kept hurling at Job. Well, you've, you've committed some heinous crime, some heinous sin that you're being punished for. Well, was that right? No. So that's an inspired account of what they said, but they themselves, the friends, were not speaking by inspiration. All right? So you have to be careful sometimes in using the book of Job that just because you find it in one of those sections that it represents a true statement. It may not if it's being stated by somebody who is himself uninspired. Ready with me? Okay. But here, beginning in 38, God's speaking. Okay, this is God answering Job. And in verse 16, this is in that section where, where God is, um, is, is giving Job one question after another. That, that he, you know, Job had kind of set himself up in the book in, in, in the midst of his um, deep despair and anguish. Uh, you know, he, he wanted his time to stand before God because he felt like he could answer these, um, uh, these allegations and, the, and that he could respond to God who he thought was the one responsible for punishing him and all that. Well, now he gets his chance, but Job doesn't say a whole lot. God speaks. He asks him this series of questions that begins with, Job, where were you when I created the world? And it, and it just kind of goes on from there. Job basically covers his mouth with his hand. Well, here's one of those statements. Job, this is verse 16 of chapter 38. Job, have you entered the springs of the sea? Or have you walked in search of the depths? Now, that first question. Have you entered the springs of the sea? Is there any evidence that in our saltwater oceans there exists freshwater springs? Yeah, there is. The first reference to them in secular writings outside of Scripture comes from uh, a Roman geographer named Strabo who lived between 63 B.C. and 21 A.D. That's the first secular reference that, that we know of to there being springs in the sea. We know today that such springs exist off the coast of Italy, Greece, and Israel. And Australia. But that's only a, a recent discovery as far as we count time. Well, how did the writer of Job know that? Who recorded the words of God in Job thirty-eight sixteen? Look at Leviticus chapter 17. Leviticus chapter 17.
beginning in uh, verse 11, we find these words. This is in the section of the Law of Moses where God prohibited His people from eating blood. And he says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood. Verse 11. And I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. Therefore, I said to the children of Israel, No one among you shall eat blood, nor shall any stranger who dwells among you eat blood. Whatever man of the children of Israel or of the strangers who dwell among you who hunts and catches any animal or bird that it may be eaten, he shall pour out its blood and cover it with dust. For it is the life of all flesh. Its blood sustains its life. Therefore I said to the children of Israel, you shall not eat the blood of any flesh, for the life of all flesh is its blood. Whoever eats it shall be cut off. All right, so God made this law and said, you're not to eat blood. Here's why. Because the life of the flesh is in the blood. And the blood is for the atonement for your souls. And so you make sacrifices and all that. You're pouring out the blood. So there was a connection with the atonement and all of that. And God said, I don't want you eating blood. But several times in this section where he prohibits the eating of blood, he says, because the life is in the blood. The blood he even says... Uh, the blood, uh, first part of verse 14, its blood sustains its life. I want you to think about that concept. Now, to us, that's basically a given, right? We understand that principle. That without blood, we die. Okay? Because the blood sustains life in that it's the blood that carries the oxygen uh, that our bodies have to have in order to maintain and sustain life. And so we get that principle. We've seen it, you know, medical science has, you know, has progressed to the point that, that you know, we, we grasp that principle. It's a part of our everyday knowledge. But did you realize that that was not always the case? That, that, that medically speaking, it wasn't always connected that, um, that this principle was true. You ever hear of the bloodletting process that was used in centuries past as a means that people thought could, could cure people? And it was partially... Um, I think there's some discrepancy on this from some historians, but there uh, are a lot who uh, have stated that that was in part the process that ended George Washington's life, first president of our country. So that's fairly recent when you think of world history. The idea was that, well, you know, a person can be ill, and the illness they, they contended you know, could be connected to the blood. The blood is contaminated. The blood is bad. If we can get enough of that bad blood out of the person, then they'll be all right. And so they would, they would just release blood. Well, as long as they didn't release too much, you know, a person could live through that, right? We can give blood, right, and it not kill us. But if you let too much out, a person's going to die. 
And a lot of people did through that process. But they thought, if we can get this bad blood out of this person, they're going to be okay. But God was clear, the life of the flesh is in the blood. Well, how did Moses know that? When medical science didn't come to that conclusion until fairly recently. How about Genesis uh, chapter 17? Genesis chapter 17. <clears throat> circumcision covenant in the days of Abraham, which then continued into um, the Mosaic uh, economy. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male child in your generations, he who is born in your house or bought with money from any foreigner who is not your descendant. All right, he that is eight days old. Sometimes God attached some kind of specific significance to a particular day or particular number. For example, the Sabbath observance. God said in the Ten Commandments, shall, you know, observe the Sabbath, remember the Sabbath, keep it holy. And He gave the reason for that under that law. For in six days, God created the earth, the seas, the skies, and all that is in them. And he rested on the seventh day. So he said, now based on that, you work six days and rest on the seventh. All right. So the seventh day was, uh, was made special because of that. Right. So God said, here's why I want you to observe this particular day, because of this. Here, God says... With regard to circumcision, he that is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. You ever wondered why day eight? Why not day three or five or ten? Well, let me say before going any further, the Bible does not specifically say. All right? So this is not a matter like with the Sabbath day where God said, I want you to observe this day for this reason. He just simply says, day eight. I don't know of any place in the Scriptures where God reveals, this is why I said do it on day eight. Okay? Everybody got me on that? Now, having said that, let me offer you a possibility as to why that may well have been the reason God said day eight. We know now that in human beings, blood clotting depends on three factors. Platelets, vitamin K, and, and, a, and a substance in your blood called prothrombin. Through the work of uh, a Professor Dom in 1935, it was discovered that vitamin K is what is responsible for the production of prothrombin in the body. Okay? If vitamin K is deficient, then so will be 
the prothrombin. And it's possible in that scenario that hemorrhaging could occur in the body. Everybody with me so far? You need, you need platelets, vitamin K, and prothrombin. Prothrombin is created by the vitamin K. So if you're deficient in vitamin K, you're going to be deficient in this other substance. And hemorrhaging is a possibility. All right? So, we've, the, you know, medical science has figured that out. Vitamin K, they've also discovered, and then consequently the prothrombin that comes from the vitamin K, that begins to be produced in newborns on days 5 through 7 after birth. Any, any of our nurses? Got, I know we've got some nurses in the congregation. Any of them in here? Okay. Oh, here we go. All right. Um, one of the classic medical texts, and I don't know if they still use it, is Holt Pediatrics. You've heard of that? Have you? Or no? The book? Um, it's, it's, a, it's a medical text. been around for a long time. It's one of the classics. Uh, Holt Pediatrics. That, that text says that a newborn infant has, quote, peculiar susceptibility to bleeding between the second and fifth days of life. Hemorrhages at this time, though often inconsequential, are sometimes extensive, end quote. All right. So if vitamin K is not produced in sufficient quantities until days five through seven, would it not be wise to postpone surgery until sometime after that when hemorrhaging is not as likely, especially in a time when medical um, technology is not as advanced as it is today? Incidentally, uh, today uh, newborns are, are just given vitamin K injections right after birth. Ours were. I remember that. Yes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, Sister Scarnato was, was saying that uh, corroborating the, the vitamin K shot thing... They, they, they just simply do that now because they know that vitamin K helps with the, the process of the blood continuing to develop and uh, you know, prevents, can help prevent hemorrhaging and all of that. So they just give them vitamin K shots, which helps speeds up, to speed up that process. But if you're looking back in, in time when they didn't have vitamin K injections, It would be wise then to postpone any kind of surgical procedure until the vitamin K was sufficient enough to create the ability for the blood to clot effectively. Now, oddly enough, right, the vitamin K begins to be produced on days five through seven. Oddly enough, on the eighth day after birth, the amount of prothrombin present in the body is elevated above 100% of normal for the only time in the life of the male. 
So if surgery was going to be performed on a newborn, again, in a day when technology, medical technology was not as advanced as it is today, day eight would be the perfect time to do that. Now, is that the reason why God chose day eight? I'm not saying I know that that's the case. Because the Bible doesn't come out and tell us that. But our advances in medical technology have revealed that it is the case if you're going to do surgery on a newborn, that would be the perfect time to do it. Yes. Right. <clears throat> yeah, it, it, yeah, it was a necessity. Yep, yep. Uh, you know, I wish we had more time uh, to go into and to look back through the old law, the Mosaic law, at all of their um, uh, their uh, the laws concerning cleanliness under the old law and and how they were, you know, the the, the concept of quarantine. You know, that's that's a that's a recent discovery, medically speaking. When, when you when you look at the history of the world, the idea of quarantining to, to keep things from spreading to others, right? You know, leper colonies and all that. You know, that that's God had that embedded in His law. There, there are things in the law with regard to um, how to deal with dead bodies, and and the idea God said specifically, don't touch one. If or you know, if you do, I mean, in the process of having to deal with that. If you've touched a dead body, you stay away from the rest of the community for X amount of time, and you go through this cleansing process and all of that. I mean, going back through and look at all those cleanliness laws that God had embedded within His law that make perfect medical sense. But not until recently, as far as us discovering it is concerned. It was in the Bible all that time. But we, you know, we didn't catch up until later. Look at uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 7. Ecclesiastes 1, verse 7. <clears throat> Solomon is... Um, Solomon is basically kind of laying the foundation for what he's writing in the book. And he's talking about the monotony of life. This happens, and then it's repeated, and this happens again, and the sun rises and sets and hurries to the place where it came from, and all of this. He's going on all this monotony, but no explanations for the meaning of life. All right, So it's in that context that he says, verse 7, Ecclesiastes 1, All the rivers run into the sea, yet the sea is not full. To the place from which the rivers come, there they return again. All right. The Mississippi River dumps over 6 million gallons of water into the Gulf of Mexico every second. Where, pray tell, does all that water go? And that's just one river. All the rivers run to the sea, yet the sea is not full. Dumping that much water into... Whoa, what happened? Well, Solomon says, to the place from which they come... There they go again. So what's he telling us about the water? It gets dumped into the sea, and then 
the water is taken back to where it came from, and it just it's just a vicious cycle. What do we call that? The water cycle, right? Remember studying that in school? Where, you know, the water evaporates, right? Creates clouds. The clouds go over the land, and the clouds drop the water onto the land, which goes into the rivers, and the rivers run to the sea, and... Do you realize that the idea of such a water cycle was not fully understood or accepted until 16th, 17th century? Scientifically speaking? It's in the Bible all along. And Solomon mentions it again in chapter 11, and Amos the prophet mentions it in Amos chapter 9. Well, how did they know about that? How about Genesis 3, verse 15? <clears throat> I will put enmity, strife, between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. Focus in on those two words, her seed. Now, we understand the fact that not only does the male of the human species possess seed that leads to life, so does the woman. Right? We understand that. Each man and woman, each supplies seed that, when combined, forms new life. Did you realize that that was not always the conventional thinking? that it used to be the conventional wisdom that the woman in the process was really nothing more than uh, a glorified incubator. We know that's not the case, but there was a time when that was what people thought. There's one text that I read about where a writer even suggested that male seed could be deposited in warm mud. And the end result would be the same as placing that seed in the woman. But Moses didn't teach that kind of nonsense. He said the woman has seed as well. How about Genesis 1? Back to the creation week. No less than four times in this chapter, verse 11, verse 12, verse 21, and verse 24, Moses, the writer of Genesis, mentions that things produce after their kind. The animals will produce after their kind. Plants produce after their kind. Now, that's no big news for us today because we understand the laws of genetics and the laws of heredity. Those things ensure that things produce after their kind. If two buffalo mate, the resulting life that comes from that union is not going to be a dog, right? Or a palm tree. Okay, things produce after their kind. Two buffalo mate, they produce buffalo. You don't get a banana from a corn stalk, right? 
things produce after their kind. The science of genetics was not discovered until about 1900. When that came to be, all right, this is, this is verifiable, this is scientific law, we've got this figured out. Well, Moses evidently knew that a long time before the geneticists figured it out. Things produce after their kind. So there are a lot of other things. These are just a few of, of these types of facts that are mentioned in Scripture, but I believe, I believe they're sufficient to warrant the conclusion that the Bible is not the product of mere human mind. There was a supernatural mind behind it that knew all of this. Now, very quickly, by way of opposition to this material, some claim that the Bible contains scientific falsehood. That regardless of what you may say about these other matters, there's scientific falsehood in the Bible. For example, some will say, the Bible teaches geocentricity. The idea that the earth is actually the center of uh, the universe with the sun or our solar system, and the sun actually orbits uh, the earth. Okay, Geocentricity. Some people say the Bible teaches that. Well, um, where do they claim the Bible teaches that? In passages like Ecclesiastes 1 verse 5, where Solomon says the sun also rises and the sun sets. Jesus in Matthew 5, verse 45, God causes the sun to rise on the evil and on the good. And they'll say, look at that. Technically speaking, the sun does not rise and set. The earth is orbiting the sun and it's actually the earth that is, that is changing its position and that gives the impression or the look that the sun is rising and setting. But technically, that's not true. And so when the Bible uses that terminology, it's therefore scientifically inaccurate. It's teaching geocentricity. Question. Does, um, you know, when, when Tim Heller on the news, the, the meteorologist, the weather guy, when he references the sun rising and the sun setting, does he not understand that that's not technically accurate? Does he not understand that the earth actually rotates toward the sun and away from the sun? Well, sure he understands that. But he uses sunrise and sunset. Do science teachers and parents who teach their children the sun rises in the east and sets in the west... Are they accused of believing in geocentricity because they use that language? No. Why not? Because accommodative language exists. There is a such thing as accommodative language. And there is a specific type of accommodative language that we use sometimes that's called phenomenal language which simply means that we speak of things not as they technically are, but as they seem or as they look. The sunrise and the sunset are of that sort. Scientists, scientists, science teachers, meteorologists, parents 
everybody references the sunrise and the sunset, knowing all along that technically speaking that's not what's happening, but that's what it looks like. And we refer to things according to that phenomenal language as they look and not as they technically are. I'll give you another example. A woman is about to give birth, and what happens? Her water breaks. Now, is that literally true? First of all, amniotic fluid is not water. It's amniotic fluid. We call it water. Second, the fluid itself does not and cannot technically break. What breaks? The sac that's holding it. Now, do doctors understand that principle? Do they understand that amniotic fluid is not water? And that, the, and that the amniotic fluid itself is not what's breaking, it's the sac that's holding it that actually breaks. Do doctors understand that? Well, sure they do. But do doctors refer to the water breaking? Sure they do. Why? Because accommodative language is a part of language. We use it all the time. It doesn't mean that we don't technically understand some of these principles that the accommodative language may seem to be overlooking. Here's the thing that bothers me, one thing. A lot of detractors of the Bible consistently employ all kinds of literary license and accommodative language, but they will arbitrarily deny Bible writers the right to do the same. And that is technically unfair. If you're going to use accommodative language, and you're going to use literary license in your communication with others, then why cannot the Bible writers be allowed that same luxury? Should they be? Absolutely. They're communicating just like everybody else. So the Bible doesn't teach geocentricity. It uses the same kind of accommodative language that we use all the time. All right. Some archaeological things right quickly. The gospel accounts, in other words, these are things that for a long time people said, see, the Bible is wrong because it mentions this and this never existed. And then lo and behold, long, you know, time goes by and some kind of archaeological discovery is made that proves that the Bible was right all along. And there are a lot of these. Here's one. The gospel accounts often refer to Pontius Pilate, right? The Roman official in Judea. Uh, that, you know, against his own better judgment, acquiesced to the Jewish mob and ordered the crucifixion of Jesus. Do you realize that for 2,000 years nearly, there existed no archaeological evidence that documented his life? The only references to him were the Bible references and then a couple of short references in Josephus, a Jewish historian, and Tacitus, a Roman historian. But in 1961, a stone slab was discovered in ancient Caesarea. It had been used in the construction of an ancient theater, and on that rock was inscribed the name of Pontius Pilate. The Bible's accuracy regarding his existence was confirmed by that. Not that we necessarily needed that, but it's helpful when people say, well, we're not sure he even existed, and then you find evidence, well, lo and behold, he did. The Varder Gate. <clears throat> when Luke wrote of Paul's preaching work in the city of Thessalonica, he referred to the rulers of the city in Acts 17, verses 5 and 6. That phrase, translated rulers of the city in some translations, 
translates a single Greek word, polytarchus. Some translations in English will have the word polytarchs, an anglicized form of that. That word, polytarchus, occurs in the New Testament only in Acts 17, verses 6 and 8, where Paul references them as the, the rulers of the city of Thessalonica. For years, Bible critics accused Luke, the writer of Acts, of factual inaccuracy because nowhere in Greek writings was this term ever used as an official title. And so it was argued that Luke referenced an office that didn't even exist. But in 1867, a Roman arch called the Varder Gate, dated between 30 B.C. and 143 A.D., was discovered on the Via Ignatia, the great Roman road that went through Thessalonica. And on that arch is an inscription that begins in the days of Polytarchus. Later, in 1960, a list of 32 inscriptions was published that included the term Polytarchus as a title of certain civil authorities. Nineteen of the 32 inscriptions were discovered in ancient Thessalonica, and three of them dated to the first century. For centuries, people said, Luke doesn't know what he's talking about. Until, lo and behold, here's evidence that he did. There's another, the Sergius Paulus stone. We, we're running out of time here. Um, Acts 13, verses 4 through 7, mentions Sergius Paulus. and mentions his title as proconsul on uh, the island of Cyprus. Well, again, for years, skeptics assaulted Luke's account, claiming that that, that wasn't the case. Proconsuls did not rule Cyprus at that time, but they discovered this inscription uh, that um, corroborated Luke's account. Uh, the Gallio inscription, same thing. Gallio, uh, proconsul of Achaia in Acts chapter 18. They never thought that was right until 1905 when a letter was discovered that, that um, proved it was. One final thought. In the book of Acts alone, just the book of Acts, Luke sets himself up for criticism and investigation by mentioning 32 countries, 54 cities, 9 Mediterranean islands, 95 different people, 62 of which are not mentioned anywhere else in the New Testament, and 27 of which are unbelievers, usually civil or military officials. Luke set himself up for scrutiny because he was so specific in mentioning all of these details. Yet archaeological discoveries have yet to discredit one single word that he said. The Bible ought to be given at least the same hearing as any other ancient writing in determining the truth. No text of ancient or modern history has been scrutinized as severely as the Bible has. None. And yet no ancient or modern text is better documented than the biblical text. All right. Next week, uh, I'll not be here. Alan will be teaching. And he's going to build on that by asking and answering the question, can we trust our Bibles? And so more information on that uh, next week. All right. Thank you much. Appreciate it.